Hello and welcome to Metaphors of EdTech, a podcast by me, Martin Weller. In this podcast, I talk about metaphors of educational technology. There's an accompanying book published by Athabasca University Press, which you can check out. It's free to download or you can buy the print copy. And in each episode notes, I'll put links to interesting articles or things that are relevant. So check those out. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to a sub-series of Metaphors of EdTech, uh, where we revisit my previous book, 25 Years of EdTech, and I'm now updating it to 30 Years of EdTech. Previously, uh, when the book originally came out in 2018, a colleague, Clint Lalonde, uh, decided to set up a community project turn it into an audio book with a different person reading each chapter. You can see that over 25years.opened.ca. And Laura Pasquini set up a podcast called Between the Chapters with guests talking about that chapter each week. So I recommend visiting that. What I plan to do here is to republish the audiobook version with a preface from me, thinking about kind of how things have changed and whether I was still happy with that chapter and what's moved on since then, plus the extra five years uh, that takes us up to now. Hello, welcome to another episode of 30 Years of EdTech. And there we're up to 1999, complete with all prints references as you want. The audio book chapter is read by Angela Gunder and it's Kelvin Bentley who appears on the Between the Chapters podcast with uh, Laura Pasquini as host. So this year's topic was e-learning. And as I say in the chapter, it's kind of maybe it's a bit late to have it, but it's kind of felt when lots of people were kind of getting on board with the with the e-learning thing and putting e in front of everything. And I talk in the chapter about the success I had with uh, the first sort of fully online course at the Open University. Um, and you know, at the time there'd been lots lots of kind of doubt about that. People said to me, no, no one wants to learn this way, kind of stuff. And we ended up having, I think it was like 15,000 students uh, sign up for it. And I, I say in the chapter, it kind of reveals that these students were keen to study this way and saw it as liberating whereas most academics were reticent about its use and frequently hid this reluctance behind concerns about students. So often say, oh, you know, I'd like to use e-learning, but I'm worried about students. And it, we kind of demonstrated actually there were plenty of students, I'm, I'm not saying all, but you know, who wanted to learn this way. And I think uh, as we sit here in at the end of 2023, maybe there's this, you could argue some of the same with artificial intelligence. You know, lots of students are out there just using this stuff and getting on with it and, you know, uh, there's lots of angst um, about academics and its use, but I think maybe it's also slightly different. And one of the things I talk about a lot in this chapter is the kind of shift in economics from um, uh, a production model that used to do with um, distance learning to kind of one that has more emphasis on presentation. There's also a shift in how we um, think about campus-based education as well. Um, but I think one of the interesting things is uh, we didn't really see a reduction in costs with the shift to uh, e-learning. And there's this kind of low cost of e-learning myth, which I say kind of keeps reoccurring. Uh, and we really actually see this reduction. You say, oh, we're going to be able to save all this money, but it, the money just shifts elsewhere. And again, to come back to our latest bugbear, artificial intelligence, that that myth is, is reoccurring there. And we'll have to see whether it turns out to be true or not. And on that economic model, uh, campus learning and good e-learning have very different models. And it's often difficult to sustain both. And I think kind of post-pandemic, lots of uh, traditional campus-based universities have found themselves caught between this. They kind of still have all the expensive physical infrastructure, 
but now frequently students aren't turning up to lectures they still they want to watch it online uh, but they, they can't really afford to invest in developing um, really high quality e-learning courses and Laura Pasquini expresses quite a lot of concern over this um, and I think maybe there's some room here like during the we'll come on to these in later chapters but during the pandemic I talked about you know, maybe now is the time again for uh, open educational resources to shine and people can share content you don't need to be creating all this e-learning content yourself or MOOCs or again AI to kind of generate content maybe that can help here you know you know Kelvin suggests in the podcast maybe institutions need to focus on what they do well uh, and for the bits they where they have some gaps kind of get that in through other means as, as suggested um, another thing that comes up in the podcast and it's one that I think Jim Groom mentioned in a previous episode was that these kind of early years Kelvin mentions it kind of felt like the the wild west you know everything was kind of unstructured and unrestricted um, and and that was fun but also quite problematic as well and when we come on to the uh, VLE or LMS chapter one of the the reasons for that was that you know at the time you could go to 50 different courses as Kelvin says and and how they're structured or what people are doing them will be def very different for each each course you know the people i'm i'm running this in using this system and we're going to have it like this structure over here so that was good fun but i think very confusing for students and part of the problem part of the solution to that problem was to have a, a kind of uniform uh, presentation uniform system and it's interesting that um the podcast that laura hosts was recorded during the pandemic and they make the point that now everyone's doing e-learning suddenly and this was the kind of the big thing that you know all those e-learning uh, divisions that lots of universities have which were tucked away at the end of a quarter somewhere were suddenly like hey we all need to do e-learning come and help us and it was suddenly sort of thrust into the into the limelight as it were and laura talks about oh no and, and now we're rethinking the pedagogy and, and that made me think now we're rethinking the pedagogy why weren't we doing this you know over 20 years ago and I think that kind of comes back to something that it, in, even in the chapter, I, I bemoaned that a, a headline in 2018 still saw e-learning as, as something new. And and we saw that, and that was reinforced during the pandemic. It was like, oh, we're all having to go online. We have to learn online. What's this, what's this strange thing? No one's ever done this before. And there's, there's an awful lot of snobbery, I think, about online learning. And I think some of that was seen in that the early criticism that I mentioned in the chapter. So people like David Noble talked about digital diploma uh, mills. And there was kind of some valid fears in that about kind of you know, um, just replicating knowledge and taking it away. But also what was very clear was that face-to-face -face, uh, education was, was the best thing, was the pinnacle, was all we could do, you know. Um, and we saw this uh, after the pandemic as well, that when there was lots of headlines about universities being punished if they didn't go back to face-to-face -face provision and they would have fees docked and you know as if as if online learning was some form of you know pedagogical abuse and I think that's it's, it's interesting the way that attitude is still persists and maybe it's because the, the people in power the politicians really experience in the online learning they all go to Oxford or Cambridge you know and uh they're in the UK anyway, their experiences of a very sort of well-structured, you know, well-supported face-to-face institution. So I think what I'm left with at, at the end of this chapter and at the end of the recent events is thinking that there's a kind of paradox around e-learning. In some ways, it's been fantastically successful, you know, even before the pandemic when everyone has to go online. You know, all institutions have a VLE, they all offer some form of hybrid uh, or online learning. 
And then at the same time, it still feels like people haven't really engaged with it. We're still asking a lot of the questions, a lot of the questions Laura and Kelvin talk about in the in the podcast. We could have been asking these back in 1999, you know, that we could have been having exactly the same conversations. And so in some ways, it it doesn't feel like we've really moved on. I think in an earlier podcast, Laura uh, posed the question, did we did we ruin it all? You know, did we spoil it? And I think almost with e-learning, it's almost a case of, did we just do nothing? Did we just kind of like let it drift when we could have been doing more? And I think that's an interesting thing for us to ponder. Kind of why was it that when the the pandemic hit, that e-learning was still a new thing for us to be engaging with? To be explored more in later chapters. Welcome to 25 Years of Ed Tech, the serialized audio version of the book, 25 Years of Ed Tech, written by Martin Weller and published by Athabasca University Press. This community-produced audio version of the book is narrated by a global cast of educators with a new chapter released each week. In addition to the book, there is also an accompanying podcast called Between the Chapters, which contains analysis and discussion of each chapter of the book. For more information on the audio version of the book and the accompanying podcast, or to subscribe, visit 25years.opened.ca. Chapter 6, 1999, e-learning, read by Angela Gunder. In truth, 1999 is a bit late to situate e-learning. It had certainly been in use as a term for some time, but it was with the rise of the web and the practice of adding the prefix E to everything that saw it come to prominence. By 1999, the components of e-learning that we have seen in the preceding chapters were all in place. The web browser provided an easy-to-use common interface, computer-mediated communication tools, or CMC tools, and expertise had developed to the stage where online tuition was feasible in all disciplines. A range of pedagogies clustering around constructivism established a theoretical framework for implementation, and tools such as wikis fostered innovation and collaboration. At the turn of the century, e-learning was poised to become part of the mainstream of higher education. How this promise played out over the ensuing decade is one of the themes of the following chapters, and it is a tale of both success and missed opportunity. There was much angst about the implications of e-learning for higher education at the end of the 1990s. Nome, in 1995, predicted a dim future for universities, arguing that, quote, the ultimate providers of an electronic curriculum will not be universities, they will merely break the ice, but rather commercial firms. Textbook publishers will establish sophisticated electronic courses taught by the most effective and prestigious lecturers. End quote, page 250. Given the rise of MOOC and the ventures into course offerings from publishers such as Pearson, this prediction now in 2019 seems quite prescient. In a series of articles under the heading Digital Diploma Mills, Noble, in 1998, set out a number of objections to e-learning. Noble saw technology as a vehicle for the commercialization of higher education and the undermining of the autonomy of academics. Quote, 
What is driving this headlong rush to implement new technology with so little regard for deliberation of the pedagogical and economic costs and at the risk of student and faculty alienation and opposition? A short answer might be the fear of getting left behind, the incessant pressures of progress. But there is more to it, for the universities are not simply undergoing a technological transformation. Beneath that change, and camouflaged by it, lies another, the commercialization of higher education. For here, as elsewhere, technology is but a vehicle and a disarming disguise. End quote. Page 356. This could have been equally written in 2012, around the time of the rush to invest in MOOCs. Thus, critical approaches to edtech are not new, and just as the approaches tend to be reinvented, so do the concerns and issues. However, it was also true that much of the criticism of e-learning revealed a conceit regarding the superiority of face-to-face education over distance learning, and an assumption that face-to-face is the only valid form of education. For instance, Noble in 1998 reported that, quote, Students want the genuine face-to-face education they paid for, not a cyber counterfeit. End quote. Page 360. The focus of such criticisms was often on the life of the academic and overlooked the social function of distance, open, and flexible learning options. Notably, much of this criticism came from the United States, which is one of the few major countries not to have a national open university, and thus the attitude towards distance learning tends to be informed by low-quality correspondence education. This also drastically over-romanticized the quality of face-to-face education, prompting McDonald in 2002 to ask, quote, Is as good as face-to-face as good as it gets? End quote page 10. In a typical academic fashion, there was much debate around the definition of e-learning, and it was obligatory for one person at every conference to say in a rather self-satisfied manner, quote, there's already an E in learning, end quote, suggesting that a new term was unnecessary. But it was a useful term, as it highlighted the profile of online components and the exploration of accompanying pedagogies. At the time, e-learning broadly covered any use of electronic media in learning, but gradually the interpretation came to focus more on online delivery. Online education, web-based instruction, networked learning, all of these terms were widely used to mean the same thing, education that was delivered in some respect through the internet. This also saw the rise of a term that is still in use, that of blended learning, This term had various interpretations, with Driscoll in 2002 quoted on page 1 identifying four main forms, a blend of different forms of media or technology, of pedagogical approaches, of technology and face-to-face delivery, and of technology with job tasks. Given the manner in which even students in primarily face-to-face settings employ Wikipedia and other online resources, it is difficult to imagine any higher education situation now which isn't blended to an extent, whether formally or informally. The blending of face-to-face provision with online delivery has been one area of significant growth, and it has allowed many traditional universities to offer flexible learning opportunities.
1999, I was part of a team that developed the Open University's OU first fully online undergraduate course. This one wasn't in a wiki, Weller 2000. In keeping with the spirit of the times, a group of us were excited about the possibility of the internet for education, and particularly for distance education. We wanted to explore what it would be like to deliver a course entirely online. No printed units, no accompanying material, video, or audio cassettes, or face-to-face tutorials. This may sound like standard fare now, but it was radical in 1999 and frequently dismissed. It transpired that lots of people wanted to learn this way and had been waiting for an opportunity. The success of this course, some 12,000 students, almost overwhelmed the OU system and necessitated the invention of a whole new set of digital infrastructures and procedures to cope. More significantly, its success effectively ended the argument about e-learning and its potential for distance education at the OU. And after this good showing, it became an intrinsic part of the strategic direction. This example is significant because it reveals that these students were keen to study this way and saw it as liberating, whereas most academics were reticent about its use and frequently hid this reluctance behind concerns about students. It also illustrates one of the themes of this book, the historical amnesia prevalent in edtech. Online large-scale courses weren't invented in 2012 with the arrival of the MOOC. When BBC News breathlessly reports that the University of London is going to offer a degree online in 2018, Coughlin 2018, it illustrates that e-learning still has the ability to appear as something new. One of the interesting aspects of e-learning was the consideration of costs. As we saw earlier, the idea of an infinite lecture hall gained much interest because as Noam in 1995 put it, quote, a curriculum once created could be offered electronically, not just to hundreds of students nearby, but to tens of thousands around the world, end quote, page 249. However, This idea, which simultaneously caused dismay amongst academics and delight amongst those who fund education, failed to fully appreciate the costs involved in education, and in particular, the difference between fixed and variable costs in course production and delivery. Traditional pre-internet distance education models have high fixed costs, but relatively low variable costs. Weller, 2004. The initial production cost is high, but then the price per student is relatively low. For instance, bespoke printed units or software simulations are costly to produce, taking time and requiring the input of a range of experts. However, once made, these components are relatively cheap to reproduce, so the costs do not increase greatly as the number of students increases. This model requires a significant number of students to reach a break-even point and is well-suited to large population courses which are presented over several years without much alteration. Variable costs, on the other hand, are those that increase linearly with the number of students. For example, the payment of part-time tutors does not achieve economies of scale. The larger the population of a course, the greater the number of tutors required. 
In an e-learning course, CMC will usually form a substantial component, particularly if, as we have seen, a constructivist approach is adopted, which promotes dialogue, collaboration, and student guidance. This requires tutors and moderators to successfully implement the course. In the CMC chapter of his book, the research of e-learning expert Tony Bates in 1995 revealed that the employment of these tutors and moderators becomes the main costs involved. Such a course will therefore entail a high variable cost component. The arrival of e-learning, then, did not present a drastic reduction in the costs of higher education, although it did indicate a shift in the allocation of those resources in some cases. It was possible, although not always realized, to spend less in production because digital resources were now replacing physical ones, and there was a greater potential for reuse. However, there is often a subsequent increase in expenditure during the presentation of a course because of these increased support costs and a more rapid updating cycle. The low cost of e-learning myth keeps reoccurring, however, and was a motivation for much of the investment in MOOCs. It came as no surprise to those with any history in e-learning that the large returns on investment envisaged did not come to pass. E-learning set the framework for the next decade of ed tech. This period might be seen as the golden age of e-learning in some respects, as it was now in a position to move from the nascent experimental stage into mainstream large-scale adoption. Thank you for listening to 25 Years of Ed Tech, the serialized audiobook version of Martin Weller's 25 Years of Ed Tech, published by Athabasca University Press and narrated by a global cast of volunteers. Intro music for the podcast is Abstract Corporate by Grib Sound and released under a Creative Commons attribution license. To subscribe to the weekly audio series and the accompanying podcast between the chapters, visit 25years.opened.ca. Thanks for listening to Metaphors of EdTech. Remember to subscribe if this is your bag. Uh, and also check the episode notes for any useful links and fun things there.